The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. One of the biggest reality TV shows really of the past decade has been a show called Biggest Loser. I'm sure many of you have heard of it, but the point of the show is that they bring in contestants who are obese and they go on this amazing horrific diet and workout routine to see who can lose the most weight. Um, and if you win, if they win, lose the most weight, then they win a prize, a cash prize. And the show is extremely popular. And when asked why the show is so popular, one woman said, I think that weight loss is just so hard that people want to see success stories. And it's true. It is hard to lose weight. Uh, there's actually, um, there's actually the first contestant who was on it. His name is Ryan Benson. He lost 122 pounds on the show. A few late years later, Ryan had gained back the entire 122 pounds. It is hard to change our habits, isn't it? And I'm by no means calling Ryan out because I'm just as guilty as he is. I'm jogging again for like the 20th time, right? I've, I've been on diets, I've, whatever it might be, but I too struggle with these same things of, 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 of curbing my own passions for food, of, of gluttony, of whatever it might be, laziness, right? See, it is so hard to change patterns in your life. It's so hard to change sin patterns in your life, isn't it? Maybe you're here and you're like, I do eat really healthy and I do work out and I, I, I've stayed consistent in that for years, which is great, praise God. But there's certainly other areas in your life where you struggle. I don't know if it might be with lust, with anger, with impatience, with pride, with arrogance, with judgmentalism. I don't know what it is for you, but all of us have struggles in our life where we struggle with sin. And the question I want to ask this morning is how in the world could that sin ever be getting rid of? You know, it, it almost has a, an enslavement on us. It, is, it overpowers us to a certain extent. How in the world would that sin ever be conquered in our life? It's a question I ask every day. I hope you do too. And we're going to look at that today from Genesis chapter 33. If you would please open up your Bibles to Genesis 33. If you're in the Red Bible, it's page 27 uh, and 28. And we are just, if you're new here, we're just working straight through the book of Genesis. And just to give you kind of the setting, Jacob is returning home from Haran. Uh, he had left his hometown. He left his home because he had stolen his brother's blessing from the dying father, from their dying father. And his brother Esau said, I am going to kill you. And so Jacob thought it's time to leave town. And so Jacob left town. His mother said, when Esau's temper cools, I will send for you. Well, she died in the process. She never sent word. There was no uh, telegrams or email or phone calls. And so he is returning. And Esau, his brother, who at last word wanted to kill him, is coming to meet Jacob with 400 men, a militia of men. Jacob is, is very afraid. He makes some poor choices, which we'll talk about later. But just prior to this, God comes to him, wrestles with him, and transforms Jacob. And so that's what we're going to read about today, his encounter with Esau. Genesis chapter 33, page 27 in the bottom right. 
We're going to read the whole chapter, verse 1 through 20. Read along with me, if you would. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I meet, that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booth for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he pinched, he pitched his tents. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word, your perfect, inerrant, holy word, we pray through your Holy Spirit, transform our hearts, God. Lord, there is besetting sin in our life. Pray that you would free us from that through the power of your Holy Spirit with instruction from your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So how can we, as very weak people who have made promises, whatever it might be to overcome sin, maybe a devotional life or, or a sinful habit or sinful attitude. 
how can we as sinful people overcome this sin in our life? Well, what we will see in this is that it starts with a good foundation. That no change can happen unless a foundation is sure. And we see here that the foundation is a gospel foundation. This week, a friend of mine was reading through this passage, preparing his heart for Sunday morning worship. And he said to me, he goes, you know, I just read the chapter that we're going to be talking about this morning. You know what? That chapter makes me mad. That chapter frustrates me. It it kind of ticks me off. I said, well, why does it make you mad? He goes, well, when you look at the chapter, Esau's kind of the good guy. You know, Jacob is kind of still devious, but, but Esau is this amazing man of love and grace and mercy. And yet Jacob is the chosen man of God. Jacob is our forefather, our father in the faith. And yet he looks so much like a chump in this passage. And in a way, my friend is absolutely right. Esau came to Jacob, showed tremendous grace after Jacob had cheated him. He comes to him, running out to meet him, embracing him, weeping over him, accepting his peace offering. And then it moves on. Verse 12. Follow along with me, if you would. Verse 12. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. Esau is assuming there is a restored relationship with his brother. And he wants to ensure that his brother safely makes it home to live with Esau. Verse 13. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that my children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant. And I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and seer. Now, this seems like a very legitimate discussion. Jacob is saying, listen, I cannot drive these animals or my family too hard or they will die. So you go ahead and then I will follow behind and I will meet you in seer. It goes on. Esau said, well, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. Again, a generous offer to protect his brother as they travel. But he, Jacob, said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. You know, old ways die hard. Jacob has been a deceiver in the past. And Jacob says to his brother, I will meet you in Seir. But he journeys to Succoth. Now Succoth is not on the way to Seir. So it's not like Jacob got too tired or his flocks got too tired and he had to stop. Esau went directly south and Jacob went directly west. And so as Esau ascended over the horizon, as he disappeared over the horizon, Jacob said, all right, let's go that way. And so he deceived his brother. And so you see, my friend is right. When you read this passage, Esau actually seems like the better guy. Like if you're going to have a BFF, you probably want Esau and not Jacob, right? He's like, hey, let me protect you. Come to my house. I want to care for you. I want to love you. But Jacob deceives him and runs the other way. And so when we read eight chapters earlier in Genesis 25, when God comes to their mother, Jacob and Esau's mother, and says, I have chosen Jacob to love Jacob, to make Jacob the blessing to the nations, to give my covenant through Jacob. We wonder why. Why would God choose the jerk? 
Why would he not make his representative someone that looks a little bit better like Esau? Why did God choose the bad brother and not the good brother? Well, Romans 9 explains this. Evidently, many people have that same question all the time. You can follow along with me up here on the screen. Romans 9, verse 10, it says, When Rebekah had conceived children, talking about Esau and Jacob, by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then here is the summary, verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This story of Jacob and Esau, the explanation in Romans 9 helps give us the firm foundation of our salvation, a foundation in the gospel of Jesus Christ, a foundation that our salvation, God's loving of us is not based on our goodness and it cannot be lost by our badness, but it is given by the unilateral mercy of God. See, there is not good people and bad people. There are bad people, sinful people, all of us who have sinned against God. And all of us deserve his justice. But he has chosen to show mercy to those whom he has shown mercy. The question isn't, why did God show mercy to Jacob and not Esau? The question is, why does God show mercy to any of us? You see, our question in our heart, as far as why Jacob and not Esau comes when we forget the gospel comes maybe because we don't know the gospel comes because we say, but look, Esau's so good. Why didn't God use him? It's not based on our goodness. It is based on the mercy of God. There's a story of a woman under the reign of Napoleon and her son was condemned to death. And so she comes before Napoleon and she said, she asked him to pardon her son. And Napoleon responds saying, but your son has done something that merits death. And as a matter of fact, he has done it twice. And she said, but I don't ask for justice. I ask for mercy. But your son does not deserve mercy, Napoleon says. Sir, the woman replied, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. Well, then the emperor said, mercy is what he shall have. You do not deserve the mercy of God. I do not deserve the mercy of God. And yet the foundation we stand on is a unilateral, grace-saturated mercy of God to love and save sinners like us. And so that is the gospel foundation. And it is from that foundation, that transformation can happen. And that's what we're going to look at here. Gospel transformation. Now, even with all of Jacob's flaws, which we have pointed out a couple of them, Jacob was a transformed man. If you knew him early in the story, Jacob has come a long way. If in the beginning, Jacob was a level 10 jerk. Now Jacob is like a level seven jerk, right? He's headed the right direction, but he's still a jerk. (laughs) 
He's being transformed. Like all of us, he is a work in progress. And we see the gospel of God's mercy and grace towards him is transforming him. And we see this in several facets. We'll look at these. First, we see the gospel transforms his leadership. Do you remember, if you're around or if you've read the story, do you remember Jacob's war strategy when he first found out that Esau was coming with 400 men? This was like a chapter or two ago. Here was Jacob's war strategy, okay? Jacob says, I'm going to split up my family and my wives, because he had two, um, and I'm going to split up my flocks. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to send them in opposite directions. And then whichever one Esau attacks and kills, I will escape with the other one, right? That is chivalry, isn't it? (laughs) I'll let him kill these, and then I'll go run away with these. Jacob was an absolute coward. He was sending his family in front of him to die that he wouldn't. And yet God comes to this coward Jacob when he sends his families across the Jabbok River and he's all by himself. He comes to this coward and he wrestles with him and he transforms him to give him a gospel view of leadership. You see it here in verse one. Again, we read that Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. And then skip to verse three. And then it says, he himself, it's being emphatic, talking about Jacob. He himself went on before them, his family, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. This is a complete reversal of Jacob's strategy before. Before it was send the family first, let him kill one, I'll join the other. But now it is, I will go first. You see, Jacob is actually physically weaker. He's now disabled because the angel touched his hip and dislodged it. So he's disabled and he's weaker physically, but he is stronger spiritually. And the question is, what would make a coward courageous? What would make a coward like Jacob courageous? It's because he has been named by God, Israel. God strives. God has striven for Jacob to win him over. God fights for Jacob. God fights for his people. With that in mind, with that understanding, with that transformed heart of the mercy and grace of God, he goes ahead of his family. You know, this is a great call for men in our church to lead our family sacrificially, humbly, going before our family, taking it on the chin for them. Maybe it would mean sacrificing your very life, but many times it means sacrificing your agenda, your pleasures, your time, whatever it might be to lay down your life for your family, to lay down your pride, to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But that transformation, that difficult transformation comes through the foundation of the gospel. We also see the gospel transforms our gratitude. I won't spend long on this because we've discussed it in weeks past. But you can see here that Jacob is transformed with gratitude. You know, even Esau, even though Esau kind of looks like the better guy in this passage, nowhere in this passage and nowhere really in Esau's life does he worship the Lord God. Does he give thanks to the Lord God? And yet Jacob's heart has been transformed. Verse 5, when Esau lifted up his eyes, saw the women and children. He said, who are these with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given to your servant. Verse 11, 
Jacob is pleading for Esau to accept his gift. And he says, please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me because I have enough. Esau might come out looking like the better guy, but he is not thankful to the Lord. Jacob is thankful to God for all that he has, realizing that it is a gift of God's grace and mercy that is undeserved. We go on and we see that the gospel even transforms Jacob's understanding. This one is a little bit difficult to title, to understand. But Jacob sees glimpses of the gospel everywhere. You know, there's that very interesting verse. Read with me because this one is, is really neat. Verse 10. Jacob says, no, please, I found favor in your sight. Then accept my present from my hand. And then hear this. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. What an interesting verse, isn't it? I have seen your face, Esau. And it is like seeing the face of God. Esau is not even a worshiper of the Lord God. And yet Jacob says, when I saw your face, it was like seeing the face of God. What is Jacob saying? Is he exaggerating? Is he flattering? What is he doing? Well, I think Jacob knows exactly what he's saying. You see, the Lord God accepts us. Very similar to the way that Esau accepted Jacob. If we look at the way Esau accepted Jacob, we see it is a grace-saturated acceptance. You remember Jacob the last time had stolen Esau's blessing. And so Esau had every right to come and do harm to Jacob. And yet he had shown grace and mercy towards Jacob. He had shown favor to him. But we also see it's a lavished acceptance. Esau doesn't just come up to him and say, you know, what's going on? We read in verse 4, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. Esau's acceptance of his brother was undignified. What he did would have lowered him in the view of his servants. And yet he ran to him. He fell on his neck, on Jacob's neck, and he kissed him, and he wept. He did not make Jacob grovel. He was so happy to have him. This is a picture of how God accepts you. This is a picture of how God accepts me when we repent and turn to him. Jacob actually used, excuse me, Jesus actually uses this same language to explain the acceptance of God for sinners like us. It's found, in, uh, it's found in Luke 15. You can follow along up here. It's the parable of the prodigal son or parable of two sons. You may be familiar with it, but the younger son takes his inheritance from his dad, basically saying, I wish you were dead. He leaves town. He blows all the money. He is destitute and he is returning home. And this is what happens. Luke 15, verse 18. It's in the King James Version, so you can see how the words are similar to the passage that we read today. He says, I will rise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Very similar to Jacob's attitude towards Esau. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, and then listen closely to this. This is the same terminology used in our story today. 
His father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servant, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Jesus is telling us about the lavish acceptance of God towards sinners who repent and come home to God. He runs out to them. He runs out to you. He falls on your neck. He holds you. He weeps over you. He is rejoicing. There is a celebration in heaven over one sinner who repents. And so when Jacob saw Esau come to him and have this lavish acceptance and love for him, he said, that is how God has accepted me. Such acceptance, such love from God, such mercy should transform us. And I think indeed it has. Twice this past month, there have been times where during our fellowship break or after, um, there have been people at Jacob's Well talking to folks who are new. And I would walk up to them and we'd be talking. They'd just be joking and laughing and talking. And so I'd how long have you all known each other? And they'd say, we just met. And we'd laugh. And I'd say, no, no, seriously, have you got like elementary school? No, we just met. There's a family uh, a couple weeks ago that came over to our house who said, you know, We have moved a lot, and we've been to a lot of churches, and Jacob's Well has been the most accepting church, the most loving church we've ever been to. We've never had so many people come up and talk to us and show an interest in us. And so I I thought about that. And, And by the way, we're certainly not perfect, and so if that hasn't been your experience, I'm sorry. But what would it be? What would it be that would make us such an accepting in loving church? What would it be that would make us go and fall on their neck and weep and cling to them? Not physically, that'd freak them out. But, you know, like go to them and say, really, I mean, people, there was one couple who left because we were like too nice, right? They're like, why does everybody know our name? Are you scouting us? Like, what's going on here? You see, here's the thing is, is I know it can't be because of me guilting you into, I don't think I've guilted you into being nice to people, to accepting them. The reason why you might have this desire to accept people like someone who is desperate for friends is because you have known the acceptance of God in Jesus Christ. Because every week you come in here and you hear how you have been accepted before God, not because of who you are or what you've done, but because of what Christ has done on your behalf. And that is gospel transformation. When you have a joy to see new people come to church, to connect with God, to connect with Christ, that is because you have been accepted by your heavenly Father. And so all the glory and the praise goes to Him. Contrastly, if you are not excited to see people, if you're not excited to welcome folks in, could it be that you have forgotten the acceptance of God and Jesus Christ? And so you see the gospel transforms us. We see that Jesus Christ was rejected 
on our behalf at the cross, that we could be accepted before a holy God. And that understanding transforms us from the inside out to love and welcome and accept others. Finally, fourthly, we see the gospel transforms our worship. Jacob was not much of a worshiping man, if you remember kind of his story. Verse 20, the last verse, it says, there in the promised land, land that he bought, it says, there he erected an altar for worship and called it El Elohi Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. See, the center of Jacob's worship was God. Now, I know you might be thinking, duh, that is common sense. The center of our worship should be God. But it is so quickly distracted for all of us. Every time we come on Sunday morning, I'm praying, Lord, free us from distracted hearts. Help us to focus on you, Lord God. I have talked to several pastors and asked them, what is the purpose of Sunday morning worship? And you often hear things like, it is, is it a chance to, to, to nurture the flock. To, to save the lost, right? And these are good men who love the Lord and love the church. But I think we lose focus. The purpose that we gather here for Sunday morning worship is not you. Surprise? <laughs> we don't gather here for you. We gather to give worship and glory to God who deserves it. You know, it's kind of like a birthday party, right? If you were to go to a birthday party and I'd say, what's the purpose of going to that birthday party? And you said, well, it's, I'm going to get cake and ice cream, right? I'd be like, that's not the reason you should go to a birthday party. To go to a birthday party is to celebrate that person in their life and the grace of God towards them, right? You are not the focus of that birthday party. That person is. And if you understand that you are not the focus of that birthday party, you will go even if you don't want to, <laughs> You will go even if there's a Packers game or if the beach is nice or whatever it might be. You will say, this is not for me. It is for that person. It is for another. And so we come to church and we come here not for us, but for God to give him glory, to give him worship. And so this becomes the most important appointment of the week for us. Because this is where God has commanded us to gather on his Sabbath to come and worship him. And you know what? God blesses us. He doesn't give us cake and ice cream, but he blesses us with his grace. When we come and we focus our hearts and our minds to worship him alone, he transforms our hearts by his grace. Gospel worship is God-centered worship, Christ-centered worship, Holy Spirit-centered worship. So just to wrap up, the gospel foundation that we stand on before God, his unilateral, undeserved, gracious mercy, that foundation is what transformation comes off of. Transformation in our leadership as we lead sacrificially, knowing that Christ has sacrificed himself on our behalf. It transforms our gratitude. We are thankful for all that he has given to us because we know we are undeserving. The gospel transforms our understanding as we see that God runs to us. He weeps over us. He grasps us. He falls on our neck because he cherishes us. And the gospel even transforms our worship to be God-centered. You know, I asked the question again today, how can we as extremely weak people overcome sin? And, and we are certainly a work in progress. I make no assumptions that we will be perfect this side of glory. 
But what we see is that we must have a foundation of God's love for us, a foundation in Christ of the gospel towards us. And it will transform us from the inside out. Let me end with this story. When I uh, lived over in Bloomer, Wisconsin, I got a job building sunrooms. And many times when we'd show up on a site, they would subcontract out the concrete work for the sunroom. So we would show up and you would see this beautiful piece of concrete with nothing on it. And we would get there and, and, and basically these sunrooms, I would never buy one. I won't tell you what company it was, but um, it just came in a box and it was like a big erector set. And so we would put it together. So we would take these tracks out and we would lay them down on the edge of the foundation and then we would connect it to the foundation. And then once we had those tracks in, we would take the wall panels and just put them in and connect them to those tracks, which were connected to the foundation. And then, and then after that, we would connect another track on top and we connect it to the wall, which was connected to the bottom track, which was connected to the foundation. And then finally we would put on the roof and we would connect that to the track, which would be connected to the wall, which would be connected to the lower track, which would be connected to the foundation. You see, there was nothing there when we showed up, but there was this beautiful transformation of that space into this sunroom, but it was all built on the foundation that was laid there. We have a great foundation in Jesus Christ. And what happens when we try by our, by our mere effort to change, to overcome sin, it may endure for a while, but it fades. But if we set our foundation on Jesus Christ, it doesn't only change our actions, it transforms our heart from the inside out. And it overcomes sin. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you acknowledging that we are weak people and we desperately need to be reminded of the gospel, that we have all we need in Christ, that you have been merciful and gracious to us. God, we pray that that would transform our hearts, that we might live holy lives towards you, that we might live more for your glory and less for our own. Remind us of your love and mercy and the sufficiency of that every day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.